He's got this long litany the Apostle Paul has of what suffering looks like. There are seven sufferings that Paul enumerates in Romans this morning. Seven is kind of a, it's a magic number, if you like, in the Hebrew tradition. It's the days of creation. It's the seven patriarchs and matriarchs. There's seven branches on the menorah. Seven is a power number. It's associated with blessing and with perfection. But here, Paul is using seven sufferings as a way, I think, of, of describing a kind of a, a perfection of suffering. This is not a simple, simply a, a conventional list. It is, we assume, the kinds of things that would have had a deep resonance for the members of this early community Paul is writing to in Rome, this mixed group of ethnic Jews and ethnic non-Jews squabbling with one another over just about everything from politics to religion, you name it. They couldn't agree on very much. But here, Paul seems to be attempting to unite them in a sense of shared suffering. He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship, distress, persecution or famine, nakedness or peril or sword? He says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being slaughtered all the day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughters. Hardship, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. Scholars think those terms would have had the same sort of visceral recognition for Paul's original hearers in the ways that the terms pandemic, economic collapse, political dysfunction, tear gas, pepper spray, rubber bullets, and murder hornets might have in, the, in Portland in 2020. Paul is naming the sufferings of his community, a sort of a perfected series of threats that might cause an outsider looking into that community to think to herself, those people's God has abandoned them. Right? Paul is writing in a world where good fortune and religious success are pretty closely intertwined in most people's mind. It's not, it's not quite the prosperity gospel, but it's something kind of close to it. If God is with you, it was thought, God will grant you success and happiness and wisdom and understanding, a full measure of grain and wine and oil, many wives, many children, many slaves and concubines. That's the Roman ideal. The Jewish ideal was a little less concubiny, but it wasn't that far off. Ecclesiastes says, go eat your bread with enjoyment, drink your wine with a merry heart. God has long approved of what you do. A healthy spiritual life, it was thought, corresponded to a blessed material life. And nothing could be further from Paul's conception of what it means to live the life of the blessed. For your sake, he accuses his God, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. Those are ancient words. They're from Psalm 42. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. And worse than that, Paul says, worse than that, the very fact that we are experiencing the worst that the world can throw at us, hardship, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword, those threats, those perils cause everyone else who is watching us to question our integrity, to suspect our status. We are held in suspicion and contempt and shame because of our suffering. So what gives, right? Did we, did we get it wrong somewhere? Are we like barking up the wrong tree? So many people are saying that about us, right? Those cursed people. What are we supposed to do in the midst of such intense physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering? Paul describes it as groaning. That's about the best way I know to articulate what it feels like when the world is dumping on you, 
In the midst of all of this suffering, Paul says, we don't even know how to pray anymore. We've lost our spiritual center, and prayer itself has been taken from us. All that we have left is a groan. Maybe you want to translate that word as sigh. That's a slightly less dramatic way to get at what Paul is talking about. Sighs too deep for words is the, the decorous Anglican way of describing this thing. I think what Paul is really talking about, though, is like a, it's a groan, it's a grunt, it's a, a keen, a moan, a kind of primal scream style of praying. It has very little to do with saying beautiful words to God. It has a lot to do with the body's visceral reaction to pain and anguish. And Paul describes all of creation, right? Not just you and me, but the entire created cosmos groaning all together in this way. It is for Paul the most honest form of prayer, the most real form of prayer that there is. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, he says. Not only creation, but we ourselves, we who have the, the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly while we wait for some kind of fulfillment, some kind of release, some kind of freedom that has been promised to us. What we long for is the redemption of our bodies and the restoration of our souls. Paul calls that adoption, the moment when we go from being the, the orphaned, isolated children of fear and violence and become the beloved community of God, which we already are, right? Paul says that deal has been made, that bargain has been struck, you've already been saved. Paul has no patience with those who would say, pie in the sky when you die, right? That this earthly world of pain and suffering is just a momentary affliction and that the full redemption and release comes in some heavenly afterlife. That is not Paul's conception of things. He says, I have already been adopted. I have already been saved. The kingdom of God is here. It's now fulfillment and bliss are mine to claim in this life right here, right now. So why is everything such a mess all around me? Why do I feel this anxious? this frustrated, this crappy, so much of the time. I'll be honest, since this pandemic began, way back at the beginning of March, I found it really challenging to know how to pray. Not that like before this all started, you would have called me like a prayer warrior. My practice has always been characterized by fits and starts and hits and misses, short spurts of enthusiasm followed by long periods of struggle and dryness. But at least I had a practice, right? And it was, it was more or less working for me. And then March 12th came along. It was a Thursday. It's the last normal day, I remember. And it was like the walls have closed in, the curtain has been rung down, the darkness has descended. And while I am not so grandiose as to refer to Paul's list of seven sufferings to describe the past four months, five months for me, it has felt like a pretty near constant state of mid to high level anxiety and dread. Many of you already know this. Anxiety and dread are not psychological states that lend themselves to a robust life of meditation and prayer. I would have thought. Paul says it well. We do not know how to pray as we ought, he says. Yet, God's Spirit helps us in that very weakness. It intercedes with what our translation calls sighs too deep for words. Literally, the Greek there is wordless groanings, a silent scream. That's what the Spirit does. And, and God, Paul says, God who searches the heart, who knows the mind of the Spirit, the heart of the Spirit, the will and intent of that Spirit, God hears that silent scream of creation. And God will not keep silence. 
So I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm really leaning on the Spirit's ability to groan for me right now. Her groaning is about the only thing I can figure out how to hear in these days. A deep and primal roar of frustration and longing sometimes feels like it is the only appropriate response to everything happening in my city, in my state, in my country, in my world. Why this? Why us? Why now? I don't have the answers. More and more, I, I find the immortal, invisible, omnipotent, and omnipowerful God of power and might a formulation of words and ideas that bears little and littler resemblance to this deep calling to deep, the size too deep for words, that Paul ascribes to the interceding spirit of God that, that moves over the waters as at the beginning of creation. I'm finding it less and less satisfactory, less and less true to say he's got the whole world in his hands. I don't think I believe that. I'm not even sure that I have Paul's confidence to say in a verse that I had to memorize, maybe many of you had to memorize it too, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to God's purpose. I used to think that verse was like a, like a magic amulet, and that if I held tightly enough to it and the promise it contains, somehow everything would work out in the end. And at one level, I do still believe that. Not that Everything's going to work out in the sense that every story has a happy ending and every prince and princess find each other and go and live in a fairy tale castle happily ever after. I don't believe that. I think that's not what Paul is saying. I think what he's saying is that all things working together for good has got to include not just all things working together for me, but all things working together for the entire creation, which means that my good cannot come at the expense of somebody else's good. It can't come at the expense of all the other creatures that God has made. Animals, plants, trees, birds, flora, fauna, stars and moon, atoms and microbes, the tallest mountains and the tiniest seeds. Salvation, when it comes, has to come for all of that together. So my salvation, if you like, is inextricably linked the salvation of the entire cosmos. There is no room in this conception of the universe for me and God to have some kind of private relationship separated out from everything else that is. And I'll tell you something else I'm, I'm just starting to figure out in these stressful and anxious days of pandemic and protest. I already knew this as a form of words. I've actually preached it from this pulpit before. But the truth of it has never felt so clear to me. If Paul means anything by the Spirit helping us to pray in our weakness, he cannot just mean going away to some silent place and kneeling down and closing my eyes and folding my hands and saying words to God or expecting God to say words to me. I think Paul, at one level, certainly means something closer to what many religious traditions refer to as contemplative prayer, prayer beyond words. It's a way of thinking about prayer not as something that I do, but as something that happens to me when I open myself up to it, to size too deep for words, that I can actually learn how to access with a little bit of training, a little bit of practice. Even beyond that, though, I think is, is what Paul has to say in Romans about what real prayer looks like on the ground, which is not just size too deep for words that the Spirit translates from the depth of my heart it also has to do with this, this litany of powers that Paul sketches when he quotes from the Psalms, right? For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. 
And yet, he says, in spite of all this, in what I think are the most stirring words in the entire New Testament, in spite of all this, he says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor messengers of heaven, nor rulers of earth, neither past, nor present, nor future, or any power, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, nothing can separate me from the love of God found in Christ Jesus, the one I call my Lord. Nothing can separate me from love, Paul says. That love is mine by inheritance, it's mine by right, and tapping into that love is all that prayer is when you get right down to it. You can find it in meditation and contemplation. You can find it in marching and protesting. You can find it in a, a shared cup of coffee with a friend in an appropriately socially distanced ways. I usually find it when we're singing a hymn here at Trinity on Sunday morning. That's part of why these COVID services are so difficult for me right now, because other than Amy, our fantastic soloist, none of us are allowed to sing up here. When the hymns were taken from us, I thought, like, God has been separated from me. It's, it's my lifeline. Hymns are my lifeline, right? The, that's the one moment in the week where I tap into some ancient heritage that is running through this service, and it runs out those doors and out into the world. It's my connection to a spiritual world that otherwise feels very distant and, and tenuous and flimsy right now. But you know what? Paul is right. Even a mask and an injunction against congregational singing cannot separate me from the love of God because prayer is everywhere I look these days. Prayer is listening and it's speaking. It's singing and it's, it's marching. It's wearing a mask and it's scrubbing a bathtub. It's cooking good bread and having really good sex. It's walking on the beach. It's getting tear gassed and pepper sprayed. It's weeping tears of anguish and it's weeping tears of joy. Nothing human, nothing creaturely that connects us one with another is anything different from prayer. And all of creation is joining together, praying together, groaning together as a way of facilitating these prayerful encounters because all of creation longs together for this time of fulfillment when the walls that separate creature from creature, the walls that separate sacred from secular, the walls that separate prayer from not prayer, simply fall apart. And the children of God, the ones Paul says are predestined from before time began, are finally revealed, the shining sons and daughters of the one who made them. Until then, we groan. Until then, we pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so we march. We rise up. We take action. We refuse to shut up when they try to shut us down. That's prayer. And in the midst of all of our suffering, we learn the most important thing. The groaning is the prayer. And prayer is our salvation. It turns out that when I learn how to groan with the Spirit, I'm saved.